Well, as Stephen mentioned, we are smack dab in the middle, or actually closer towards the end of our 24 hours of fasting and prayer. And, uh, you know, I, I have a couple things related to that. One is in your bulletin, you'll notice, as we have in weeks past, there is a, uh, on the back of it, um, uh, a guide, our annual guide for a prayer for renewal for our church. And uh, so I'd encourage you to, to save that and put it inside your bulletin. These are things we're just continuously praying about as a church. Um, the other thing is, uh, it was mentioned that we have um, our prayer meeting this evening, and uh, as is the case uh, today, we'll, we'll have people at the end of our service today uh, here to pray with you if you have needs. We'll have an extended time of singing at the conclusion of our service, and, and if there's one thing in particular or there's something in particular we can be praying for you about, we'd love to be able to do that. So feel free to stop on your way back to your pew and ask for prayer. Uh, tonight at our prayer meeting, we'll also have elders present to anoint folks with oil for, uh, the, for healing spiritually, physically, emotionally. Um, we, we'd love for you to be there. Uh, during these times of prayer where we have um, fasting, which is every time we have a fifth Sunday, and every month we have a prayer meeting, but on the special convergence of the fifth Sunday and our prayer meeting, I like to focus our energies on uh, prayer, particularly as we talk about it from the scriptures. And so believe it or not, I was thinking about much of what I'm going to preach about today as I scaled Mount Wilson two weeks ago. And I promise this will be my last sermon mention of the experience, <laughs> although I will be using analogies from the hike in future writing. Uh, you may have noticed from our bulletin today that our sermon title is What Mount Wilson Taught Me About Prayer. <laughs> um, yes, it's true. While climbing to an elevation of 5,700 feet and walking back down, I had a couple of, I had some moments of prayer. I had some time to think about prayer, and I had some time to think about uh, what I wanted to say today. It was an eight and a half hour trek, and I wondered as I moved along the trail. What about the hike was most akin to prayer? And what I mean to say is that this long and exhaustive and sometimes exhausting path we call life, uh, what in my hike was most analogous to the part that prayer is supposed to play in the life of a Christian? Uh, I've heard sermons where people referred to the times of rest you'd take along the path of a hike as uh, the prayer you have on life's faith, life's faith journey. And we certainly stopped and, and, and took breaks and uh, let ourselves rest, and that would be a good one. Uh, I've heard others uh, say uh, it's those breaks to refuel, put nutrients in your body, food and water, that these are the things that are most akin to uh, the role that prayer plays in our lives. And I think s still others, some would probably conclude most obviously that the actual cries to heaven for help in the middle of a painful experience would be what prayer is like. And all of these I considered as I suffered. Um, however, when it was all over and I thought about what sustained me along the journey, it wasn't the rest or the nutrients or the actual cries of for physical help, um, it was instead the constant companionship of my friend Chris. Uh, we talked a lot, but for long stretches we wouldn't talk, but we were very aware that we weren't alone. Uh, 
there were times when we thought we may have taken the wrong trailhead and feared we may be going off into the wilderness, but wherever we were headed, we knew we weren't alone. Uh, and during the last hour of the ascent, the most steep portion of this, it was in that moment when my 53-year-old marginally in shape physical frame was nearing the end of its physical reservoirs of strength. This is the part that I think best resembles uh, what prayer should be in the life of a Christian. And it's the ability to converse with the one who walks with you and hear them say, one step at a time, brother, one step at a time. This definition of what prayer should be in the life of a Christian is certainly the notion that the Apostle Paul had when he wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, and said, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The apostle makes it clear to us that it is God's will at all times and in all places for believers to rejoice, to give thanks in all circumstances, and to pray without ceasing. Now, there are different kinds of prayer. There's uh, the kind of prayer that you could call the New Testament closet prayer, where Jesus says you find your own quiet place, you you, you get in your quote-unquote proverbial prayer closet, you are on your knees maybe, or you're you're one-on-one interceding for people and presenting requests to God. That's a, a form of prayer. Then there's the corporate prayer like we do in church where we sometimes will have corporate times, people speaking and you're in groups and you'll pray out loud together and that's certainly a type of prayer. But this type of prayer uh, couldn't be either of those because you couldn't do this without ceasing. We've all got to leave here and go back to work, right? So what type of praying without ceasing is he talking about? Uh, There are precious few times in Scripture when the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles use the authority granted them by God Almighty to tell us something is God's will, end of story. Even use the language, it is God's will for you to do this. We all long to know God's will. There are times in our lives when we pray for that. We search the Scriptures. We ask for wisdom from friends and mentors and pastors we, we are trying to discover God's will. We love it. The New Testament here lays it out for us in no uncertain terms. It is God's will that a Christian would pray without ceasing. What I'd like to suggest today is that this without ceasing type of prayer isn't on your knees or in a worship service, but instead it's a state of heart and mind whereby we are aware of the continuous presence of God and commune with him like a friend walking through this journey of life with us. Uh, Through rough roads and easy driving, through bumpy paths and smooth trails, this long journey is bearable as we abide in God. The New Testament church uh, is recorded to have had a substantially more robust prayer life than most Western affluent churches certainly than most Western affluent Christians. And our affluence is part of the problem. We are not persecuted. We are not impoverished. We are not resource challenged for the most part. And so therefore, we don't find ourselves 
in a circumstance that desperately seems to require us to seek God. It takes discipline, which is one of the reasons why we impose this discipline on our church. We say every month we're going to have a prayer meeting, last Sunday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. Every time there's a fifth Sunday, we're going to have 24 hours of fasting and prayer. These aren't natural. It isn't normal for me to starve myself for 24 hours. Quite the contrary. And so I have to, as an affluent Westerner, I have to say, I know this is good for me because God's word says I need to be a part of this. And so I'm going to do it and I'm going to impose that discipline on myself. In the New Testament church, we see Christians pursuing the Lord with vigor. Uh, I confessed recently, and will obviously do so again, that during this Lent season, I have started to repent from this delusion that I can wander through this life because I've been fortunate enough to have most of my needs met and not have to ever have to seek God for the details of my life. And I'm hoping that more and more people, fellow strugglers here at PRISM, will join me in seeking the face of God with greater passion this year. Lord knows we need him. Persecuted churches, impoverished churches, resource-challenged churches, they pray about everything. Back when I was just getting out of seminary in the 1990s, John Piper got on my radar screen as a pastor and author and Oftentimes, I found his writing like really difficult and challenging, and, uh, and one of the writings I appreciated was his remembrance of the 30 things that the New Testament church prayed about. Now, I don't have Dr. Piper's uh, mind or his preaching ability, and I've never been confused as an intellectual. Um, the scope of my giftedness as a pastor, humbly, I'll tell you, it's limited I certainly haven't mastered a musical instrument as Pastor Stephen has mastered the drums, although I do better at April Fool's jokes than he does. <laughs> but what I am about to do is uh, one of the couple of things that I can do really well. I can read fast and with crisp diction. Not a skill that you often get to celebrate, but God has wired my brain to my mouth in an interesting way. So today, let's pause for a moment and give thanks for that. Now I'm going to read the 30 things that the New Testament church prayed about. And the reason we should give thanks for this is that a minister who can't do this quickly will put all of you to sleep. By the way, I'll post these on my blogs this week so you can have the scripture references themselves. But here we go. The 30 things the New Testament church prayed about. They called on God to vindicate his people. They called on God to save unbelievers. They called on God for boldness and proclamation. They called on God for signs and wonders. They called on God to physically heal believers. They called on God to heal unbelievers. They called on God to cast out demons. They called on God for miraculous deliverance. They called on God to raise the dead. They called on God to meet their needs. They called on God for strategic wisdom. They called on God to establish leadership. They called on God to send out missionaries. They called on God for missionary success. They called on God for unity in the church. They called on God to encourage togetherness. They called on God for discernment. They called on God to know his will. They called on God to know him better. They called on God to comprehend the love of Christ. They called on God for a sense of assured hope. They called on God for strength and endurance. They called on God for a sense of power. They called on God to protect their faith. They called on God for greater faith. They called on God not to fall into temptation. They called on God to complete their resolve. They called on God that they do good works, they called on God to forgive their sins, and they called on God to protect them from the evil one. 
ladies and gentlemen, can John Piper do that? <laughs> Not anymore, he's 80, you know? It definitely limits your skill set. My point in listing these, aside from boasting about that minor gifting, is to say that before and after all that the Lord did in the lives of these individuals and these believers and churches, these people were praying all the time. They took the spiritual battle deadly serious, as the Apostle Paul had admonished them to do. In Ephesians 6, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So how is it that a Christian, in our circumstances as they did in their circumstances, can find passion in the pursuit of prayer. Uh, Jesus gives us some direction about this in the 15th chapter of John, a passage I taught not long ago, but focused at that time more on the fruit production aspect of the discourse. And today I'd like to show three foundational realities regarding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit they're important for us to know so that we can realize the joy of abiding in the presence of Jesus, living in the presence of Jesus, which then produces a life that is continuously in prayer, conversing with him, listening to him, simply enjoying the fact that he is present. After all, John 15, 11 from today's text, Jesus specifically states that he taught these things so that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be complete. The goal of the Christian life, at least from Sinclair Ferguson, great theologian, his perspective, he says, abiding in Christ means allowing Christ's words to fill our minds, direct our wills, and here's the part I love the most about what he says, and transform our affections. This is what abiding in Christ does. It transforms our affection for him. Carolyn and I have been married, uh, we'll be 29 years this summer, and through different seasons of life, we've gotten so busy that we've kind of lost sight of the need for the two of us to be together. And, and I would tell young couples who would say, you know, uh, I, I, we're struggling. We don't love each other the way we used to. We don't have the same level of affection and all the things that come with that what's going on? And I would ask a young couple in marital counseling, how much time do you two spend, just the two of you, looking into each other's eyes, enjoying each other's company? Uh, almost none. Then it's unlikely that you're going to produce those same affections that you had when you first started dating, when that's all you did. In the same way, abiding in Christ is where we would actually stir our affections for God. And so we're going to begin this analysis of these several verses in John 15 by looking at all three, but we'll start with the Son, the three persons of the one God, one being three persons, the Trinity. And the first thing I'll show you is that we abide in God's presence because the Son has made us clean. 
Uh, Already you're clean, Jesus says in verses 3 and 4 of John 15. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He was speaking to his disciples whom the Spirit had drawn, according to John 6. And they had believed and said, we will follow. And because they trusted his word, he says, you have been made clean. We now know that Jesus' primary purpose in his mission as the divine Son of God come to earth was to provide his cleansing blood to purify us from all sins. Now, certainly there is more to the Christian life than just saying, I got fire insurance, so I'm not going to go to hell. In fact, if that's all your faith is, you're probably not a Christian. A Christian is somebody who follows Jesus. And yes, in order to know that you can abide with him in his presence, you have to know that you are clean, that you are cleansed of your sins. And then in his presence, you are propelled into a life of loving others and doing mercy and loving justice. The spotlessness of your soul has been testified to by the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. three. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power, the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, through whom all things were made, the exact imprint of the Father, comes to earth for the purpose of shedding his blood in our place so he can present his blood as a purification for the sins of all who would ever believe. Unfortunately, many people who claim to be Christians, and some who really are Christians, still walk around with a sense that they got to clean themselves up before they can abide in Christ. And the point of Jesus stating that we've been made clean is to put our hearts at rest in his presence. We are clean. You are sufficiently dressed, if you will, for the occasion of being in his presence. He has clothed you in garments that are white as snow. In his eyes, you are spotless. I I do a lot of weddings, and so one of the things I'm careful to do when I sit down with a couple is I'll say, how do you want me to dress for your wedding? Because from time to time, I'll do a wedding, and I'll realize I am dressed pretty inappropriately for the occasion, either too dressed up too much or dressed up too little, like the time I showed up and didn't do enough recon beforehand and found out that it was a Lord of the Rings-themed wedding. (laughs) I was Gandalf the Bald. They gave me a staff and everything. It was really, really weird. I had a more traumatic experience once marrying a kid from our youth group, and, um, you know, I had worn these these nice... uh, they're, They're not khakis, but they're the brown, like, dress pants, And usually I would wear a robe, but you'd see the pants and the robe was black. And I went to the wedding and the mother of the bride looked at me and said, you wore those color pants? And I felt so bad about it, I actually got back in a car and drove home and changed my pants. See, people can make you feel really strange 
inappropriately dressed for the occasion, the, the reaction of the human soul to the holiness of God is similar. Uh, it's a real sense that something's not right. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not dressed appropriately. There's something really uncomfortable here. And that's the way it should be. We are, according to the scriptures, broken, fallen, sinful by nature. We are people who are in desperate need of forgiveness. And Jesus says, you know what? The way you're going to feel comfortable in my presence is by my gift to you of my holiness. I'm going to cleanse you from your sins. I'm going to make you acceptable in my presence. We abide in the presence of God because the Son made us clean. And then we move on to the Holy Spirit's role. We're able in God's power because the Holy Spirit is with us. We abide because the Son made us clean. We're able in God's power because the Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus says this in John 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We'll get to Jesus' declaration about the role of the Spirit in just a minute from John 14. But one of the reasons you're able to continuously talk with the Lord is because he just doesn't dwell with his Father in heaven on the throne. The Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and Son, has come to take up residence in the life of anyone who has called out in faith His promise is that he will never leave or forsake the children of God. Abiding simply means to dwell or to live in. To abide in Christ means that you live with Christ, that he is your life. He's the center of your world. You walk with him. You talk with him. We abide. We all abide. We abide places. We abide at work the dude abides. We all have these things going on in our lives where we know that we're just stuck and living with people. And he's called us to abide in him. But for you and I to call ourselves believers in the first place, we have to recognize that we have been called into a a more than a transactional relationship. To call yourself a Christian, it can't just be, I call out to God when I need something and then I disregard any thought of his presence or any thought of him until the next time around. I have a transactional relationship with the grocery store, Ralph. Uh, Ralph's, I go in, I don't know any of them personally. I order my goods, I pay for them, I leave. That's a transactional relationship, a a personal relationship, an intimate relationship, a, a relationship that requires abiding is one that Jesus has called you and I to. And it's his presence in our lives that not only gives us the ability to have conversation with him all the time, but the power to obey the scriptures and to do as he says here, to bear much fruit. It's, it's his awareness. It's, I mean, it's our awareness of his presence in our lives that alters the way we live. Think about it. How often... If you've been really sensitive to the presence of God in your life and you see somebody in need, a homeless person asking for change, you feel less comfortable at that moment going, ah, I'll see, I'll, I, you know, whatever. Why do why you have a sign? 
Why, you know, what are you doing with your life? You know, only, only when you're in a really strangely, oddly self-serving place can you treat people unlovingly. I've felt that way about the way I've interacted with many people at many times in my life. I'm much more sensitive to caring for people the way Christ would care for them when I have a real working sense of Christ's presence in my life by the power of the Spirit. Jesus said this in John 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Some great truths present in this statement of Jesus. We have another helper. This is another of the same kind as the Father and the Son, one of the same being. And this is the Holy Spirit. And He will be with us forever. And this is comfort to those of you who have grown up in churches or perhaps have really struggled to believe that if you, know, if you have real struggles with seasons of doubt or worry or pain or just struggles in your life with sin, that somehow or another the, the Holy Spirit's going to at some point go, you know, I've had enough, I'm out of here. Uh, the Scriptures are replete with promises that he will never leave or forsake us, that he is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And Jesus says that once you have the Spirit, he will be with you forever. Now, the world doesn't know this Holy Spirit. People who don't have Christ don't know this Holy Spirit. They, they can't see him, and they don't know him. The the proving ground, the, the, the real litmus test as to whether somebody is a Christian is something we can't really know, which is, does the Holy Spirit live in them? You can say you're a Christian, but if the Holy Spirit has never taken up residence in your life and doesn't abide in you and you in Him, and you don't find yourself almost obsessed with the notion of His presence in your life, that's when you have to start to go, okay, maybe I missed the meeting. You know, there's, there's something about the Christian experience that I am not getting. I'm calling myself a Christian, but I'm not really intimate with the Spirit. For Christians to experience the joy Jesus was speaking of and be a Christian who's obediently unceasing in prayer, our thinking has to be readjusted and renewed each morning to remember the biblical reality of the Lord's presence in our life. And we forget. We just forget. We get busy and get distracted by the cares of the world. And then we forget who our first love is. In this emptiness phase of Carolyn's in my life, or at least 95% emptiness, we're having to, because we have very different schedules, we've had to come up with a real, some pretty creative ways to make sure that she and I are getting face-to-face time. Her days off are Saturday and Sundays. Those are big work days for me. Uh, my days off are Monday and Tuesdays. It's me, the dogs, and house projects. And so if we don't every two months get away, just the two of us, and look into each other's eyes, and Carolyn have a moment of clarity, oh, yeah, that's why I married him. Okay, good, I remember. Um, we, we aren't going to make it as a, as a couple. and We're not going to be in love. We're not going to serve each other well. We're, gonna, we're gonna, not going to abide together. We're able 
according to Jesus, to abide in God's power because the Holy Spirit is present in you. If you're a believer, we're able to abide in God's presence first because the Son made us clean and the Spirit lives in us. And thirdly, we ask God in prayer because we know the Father answers. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, Jesus says, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I've heard tell that every family or group of friends has one in the group who doesn't respond when you call or text. Is that you? Are you that person in the family that everybody goes, how come you never answer? Um, I won't point out the person in the front row of our church who in our family doesn't answer. That would be unfair to them. Um, Have you ever experienced the frustration uh, when you... uh, You know what happens when you have people who you you try to get in touch with and they don't respond? You quit trying to get in touch with them. Sometimes you'll get in touch with other people to say, hey, have you heard from this person in a while? You, You quit responding. You quit calling out to them because they're not answering. And, and I, I have a feeling that there are people that have stopped praying in some way because they thought, God's not going to answer anyway. Why bother? And, and Jesus is encouraging us to, to remember that as, as we walk with him and we express our needs, the Lord will meet those needs. We're assured by Jesus that as we center our lives around living with him, unceasing in our conversation with his presence in our lives, that our Father not only hears our prayer, but that he will answer it in the affirmative. Now, as we orient our lives around the Lord's presence and his word and our continual conversation with him, we know enough not to ask him for things that his word has commanded us not to engage in. But for a second, I'll just argue the contrary point, which is somebody says, I've asked the Lord for things that I thought were according to his will, and he didn't say yes. And I would say, When he denies you, he's saying no so that he can provide his yes. His goal is to meet your need. His goal is to to know what you don't know, which is I'm going to provide for you. And if you walk with me, you, you will trust me. Even when I tell you this isn't my plan, I got something else for you. John wrote about this in his letter. First letter he wrote to the churches, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we, are, we have the requests that we've asked of him. So all of this implies that you would know what his will is according to his word. See, he answers prayers. You say, I have needs, then he's going to meet them. Scripture makes that very clear in Philippians 4.19. Jesus spoke again and again, specifically in Matthew 6, a whole discourse about not worrying in verses 25 through 33, where Jesus tells people, don't spend your life obsessed with what you eat and drink and wear. These these things are what the people of the world chase after, the people that don't know me. Instead, seek first what it means to be in fellowship, your relationship with God. Seek first the kingdom of God and and seek to please him. Make that your 
passion in life, to grow in your affection for him, to love him. And then all these other things will be given to you as well. If you want to look that one up later, that's Matthew 6. Our heavenly father knows what we need. So we're not to worry about what we're going to do and what we're going to have. He'll provide all that simply because we're his children abiding in him. He is our father. We've been made clean by the son. We're being called into greater intimacy with his presence in our life through the Holy Spirit. This is abiding in Christ. And this is what it means to be able to pray without ceasing, to enjoy and to know his joy that we'd be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So what are you praying for? Is it a renewed faith for greater affection for the Lord? Do you recognize that you lack that? Is it for a loved one to come to faith? Is it for God's provision for some real needs that you have? Is it for wisdom and a big decision you have to make? Is it for God to heal your marriage? Is it for God to provide a marriage? Is it for God to heal your broken heart? We abide in him. We ask him. He hears and answers because Jesus has made us pure in his sight. We're clean to come in his holy presence. And his spirit lives in us so we can talk with him continually. And the father answers us as a loving father does. So before we go to communion today on this special end of the month prayer and fasting weekend, before we spend time coming to the table, which is a reflection of our desire to come into the presence of God, I want to ask you to join me and quietly pour out your heart before the Lord. What is it that you need? Maybe it's you need him to take a central part in your life so that you would enjoy abiding in him and praying without ceasing. We're just going to spend a couple of minutes in absolute silence and prayer. So won't you bow your heads with me? This is the time for you to tell the Lord what you need.